Section 21 of the Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section 21. A Valiant Police Sergeant. Sergeant Hyde came to my office and asked me to accompany him as far as Murray Street. He said there was a most extraordinary dispute between a white woman and a black lubra about the ownership of a girl, and he had some doubts whether it was a case within the jurisdiction of a police court, but thought we might issue a summons for illegal detention of property. He wanted me to advise him and give my opinion on the matter, and as by this time my vast experience of justice's law entitled me to give an opinion on any imaginable subject, I very naturally complied with his request. He was, moreover, a man so remarkable that a request by him for advice was of itself an honour. In his youth he had been complimented on the possession of a nose exactly resembling that of the great Duke of Wellington, and ever since that time he had made the great man the guiding star of his voyage over the ocean of life, the only saint in his calendar and he had, as far as human infirmity would permit, modelled his conduct and demeanour in imitation of those of the immortal hero. He spoke briefly and in a tone of decision. The expression of his face was fierce and defiant, his bearing erect, his stride measured with soldierly regularity. He was not a large man, weighing probably about nine stone, but that only enhanced his dignity as it is a great historical fact that the most famous generals have been nearly all small men. When he came into my office he always brought with him an odour of peppermint, which experience had taught me to associate with the proximity of brandy or whisky. I have never heard or read that the Iron Duke took peppermint lozenges in the morning, but still it might have been his custom to do so. The sergeant was a Londoner and knew more about the private habits of his grace than I did. If he had been honoured with the command of a numerous army, he would no doubt have led it onward, or sent it forward to victory. His forces, unfortunately, consisted of only one trooper, but the way in which he ordered and manoeuvred that single horseman proved what glory he would have won if he had been placed over many squadrons. By a general order, he made him parade outside the gate of the station every morning at ten o'clock. He then marched from the front door with a majestic mien, and inspected the horse, the rider, and acrimon. He walked slowly around, examining with eagle eyes the saddle, the bridle, the bits, the girth, the sword, pistol, spurs, and buckles. If he could find no fault with anything, he gave in brief the word of command, Patrol the forest road or any other road in which an enemy might be likely to appear. I never saw the sergeant himself on horseback. He might have been a gay cavalier in the days of his fiery youth, but he was not one now. As we passed the Crook and Plaid Hotel on our return to the courthouse, after investigating the dispute in Murray Street, I observed a stranger standing near the door, who said, "'Hello, Hyde, is that you?' He was evidently addressing the sergeant, but the latter merely gave him a slight glance and went away with his noble nose in the air.
The stranger looked after him and laughed. He said, "'That policeman was once a shepherd of mine up in Riverina, "'but I see he don't know me now. "'Has grown too big for his boots. "'Cuts me dead, don't he? "'Ha, ha, ha. "'Well, I never.' "'The stranger's name was Robinson. "'He had been selling some cattle to a neighbouring squatter, "'and was now on his way home. "'He explained how he had just before the discovery of gold "'hired hide as a shepherd, "'and had given him charge of a flock of sheep. "'There were still a few native blacks about the run, "'but by this time they were harmless enough, "'never killed shepherds or took mutton without leave. "'They were somewhat addicted to petty larceny, "'but felony had been frightened out of their souls long ago. "'They knew all the station hands, "'and the station hands knew them.' They soon spotted a new chum, and found out the soft side of him, and were generally able to coax or frighten him to give them tobacco, some piece of clothing, or white money. When the new shepherd had been following his flock for a few days, Mr. Robinson, while looking out from the veranda of his house over the plains, observed a strange object approaching at some distance. He said to himself, "'That is not a horseman, nor an emu, nor a native companion, nor a swagman, nor a kangaroo.' "'He could not make it out, so he fetched his binocular, "'and then perceived that it was a human being, stark naked. "'His first impression was that some unfortunate traveller had lost his way in the wide wilderness, "'or a station-hand had gone mad with drink, "'or that a sundowner had become insane with hunger, thirst, and despair.' He took a blanket and went to meet the man, in order that he might cover him decently before he arrived too near the house. It was Hyde, the new shepherd, who said he had been stripped by the blacks. From information afterward elicited by Robinson, it appeared that the blacks had approached Hyde in silence while his back was turned to them. The sight of them gave a sudden shock to his system. He was totally unprepared for such an emergency. If he had had time to recall to memory some historical examples, he might have summoned up his sinking courage, and have done a deed worthy of record. There was David, the youthful shepherd of Israel, who slew a lion and a bear, and killed Goliath, the gigantic champion of the Philistines. There were the shepherd kings, who ruled the land of Egypt. There was one-eyed Polyphemus, moving among his flocks on the mountaintops of Sicily, a monster dreadful, vast, and hideous, able to roast and eat those three backfellows at one meal. And nearer our own time was the youth whose immortal speech begins, My name is Norval, on the Grampian Hills my father fed his flocks. Our shepherd had a stick in his hand and a collie dog at his command. Now was the time for him to display London assurance to some purpose and now was the time for the example of the ever-victorious duke to work a miracle of valour. But the crisis had come on too quickly, and there was no time to pump up bravery from the deep well of history. The unearthly ugliness of the savages, their thick lips, prominent cheekbones, scowling and overhanging brows, broad stubbed nose, matted black hair, and above all the keen, steady and ferocious scrutiny of their deep-set eyes, extinguished the last spark of courage in the heart of Hyde. He did not look fierce and defiant any more. 
he felt inclined to be very civil, so he smiled a sickly smile and tried to say something, but his chin wobbled and his tongue would not move. The blacks came nearer, and one of them said, "'Give fig tobacco, mate.' He was a gleam of hope, a chance of postponing his final doom. When a foe cannot be conquered, it is lawful to pay him to be merciful, to give him an indemnity for his trouble in not kicking you. The shepherd instantly pulled out his tobacco, his pipe, his tobacco knife and matches, and handed them over. A second black fellow, seeing him so ready to give, took the loan of his tin billy with some tea and sugar in it and some boiled mutton and damper. These children of the plains now saw that they had come upon a mine of wealth, and they worked it down to the bedrock. One after another, and with the willing help of the owner, they took possession of his hat, coat, shirt, boots, socks, trousers and drawers, till the hide was completely bare, as naked and as is to be hoped as innocent as a newborn babe. His vanity, which was the major part of his personality, had vanished with his garments, and the remnant left of body and soul was very insignificant. Having now delivered up everything but his life, he had some hope that his enemies might at least spare him that. They were jabbering to one another at a great rate, trying on, pulling off, and exchanging first one article and then another of the spoils they had won. They did not appear to think that the new chum was worth looking after any longer. So he began slinking away slowly towards his flock of sheep, trying to look as if nothing in particular was the matter. But he soon turned in the direction of the home station. He tried to run, and for a short time fear winged his feet. But the ground was hard and rough, and his feet were tender, and though he believed that death and three devils were behind him, he could go but slowly. A solitary eagle-hawk sat on the top branch of a dead gum-tree, watching him with evil eyes. A chorus of laughing jackasses cackled after him in derision from a grove of young timber. A magpie, the joy of the morning and most mirthful of birds, whistled for him sweet notes of hope and good cheer. Then a number of carrion crows beheld him, and approached with their long-drawn, ill-omened croak, croak, the most dismal note ever uttered by any living thing. They murder sick sheep and pick out the eyes of stray lambs. They made short, straggling flights, alighting on the ground in front of the miserable man, inspecting his condition and calculating how soon he would be ready to be eaten. They are impatient gluttons, and often begin tearing their prey before it is dead. Mr. Robinson clothed the naked, and then mounted his horse and went for the blacks. In a short time he returned with them to the station, and made them disgorge the stolen property, all but the tea, sugar, mutton and damper, which were not returnable. He gave them some stirring advice with his stockwhip, and ordered them to start for a warmer climate. He then directed Hyde to return to his sheep, and not let those blank blacks humbug him out of his clothes any more but nothing would induce the shepherd to remain another day. He forswore pastoral pursuits for the rest of his life. His courage had been tried and found wanting. He had been covered, or rather uncovered, with disgrace, and his dignity, at least in the Riverina, was gone for ever.' 
In other scenes, and under happier auspices, he might recover it. But on Robertson's station he would be subjected to the derision of the station hands as long as he stayed. How he lived for some time afterwards is unknown. But in 1853 he was a policeman at Bendigo Diggings. At that time any man able to carry a carbine was admitted into the force without question. It was then the refuge of the penniless, of broken-down vagabonds and unlucky diggers. Lords and lags were equally welcomed without characters or reference from their former employers, the Masters and Servants Act having become a dead letter. Hyde entered the government service, and had the good sense to stay there. His military bearing and noble mien proclaimed him fit to be a leader of men, and soon secured his promotion. He was made a sergeant, and in a few years was transferred to the western district, far away, as he thought, from the scene of his early adventure. He lived for several years after meeting with and cutting his old employer, Robinson, and died at last of dyspepsia and peppermints, the disease and the remedy combined. End of section 21